Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. To start off this morning, I want to take a survey, and I'm going to ask two questions. So put your hands up, raise your hand, if you are a Christian, by which I mean you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay. Pretty good showing. All right, now raise your hand if you have committed some sort of sin since the date of your baptism. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I had to, I had to raise my hand because Caroline is at this service and she knows. So what we can deduce from this survey is that people receive a kind of grace at baptism. Right? We teach that, that in baptism, uh, you receive grace that remits all actual sins committed up to that point. Those are your actual sins committed prior to baptism. But it also remits original sin. Original sin is that defect in our nature that's present in us from the moment of our birth as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. We're all born into Adam, so we're born into a kind of deficiency. We're not what we should be from the moment of our births. No, in baptism, we become clean, much like the lepers were cleansed of their leprosy in the gospel reading from St. Luke this morning. But yet each of us who have been baptized can attest to the reality that there is some sort of struggle within ourselves, a struggle where we often know that a thing is wrong, but we want to do it anyways, or sometimes the opposite, where we know something's right and we don't want to do it. This is called, this fleshly lust where we, we kind of long for what we, what we know we shouldn't want, is called concupiscence. That's your 10-cent word for the day, concupiscence. And unfortunately, concupiscence stays with us throughout our lives. So the stain of sin is removed by baptism, but the effects of sin still remain. Right? And this makes some sense because those of us who are baptized still suffer after our baptisms. We still get sick after our baptisms. We still feel tempted after our baptisms, and we will all die even after our baptisms. Now, concupiscence was very familiar to the Apostle Paul. The infamous chapter 7 in his epistle to the Romans is, among other things, a grappling with the fact of his own affliction with concupiscence. For that I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. Perhaps with this awareness of his own struggle in the back of his mind, St. Paul universalizes his experience in our reading this morning. He says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. This is a stark, stark dichotomy. Within you, the flesh is always pulling you one direction, and the spirit is always pulling you a different direction. The two are constantly at war with each other. And this conflict is a zero-sum game. You either feed the one or the other. You can gratify the flesh, or you can gratify the spirit. It's another thing I think we learn from experience, right? Because why do we feel guilty after we sin? We feel guilty after we sin because we know we chose some sort of temporal lesser pleasure at the expense of a greater good, which is obedience to God. 
To this end, then, St. Paul gives us two readings or two lists in our reading this morning. The works of the flesh, the first list, and the fruit of the spirit, the second list. The latter is certainly more well known, but if you've ever read St. Paul, you can probably anticipate many entries in this works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, perversion, idolatry, strife, jealousy, anger, witchcraft, hatred, selfish rivalries, dissension, partisanship, envy, murder, drunkenness, and reveling. These belong in this list, even though they're seemingly disparate acts, they belong together because they are actions that bend the knee to concupiscence rather than obedience to God. And so as an alternative, St. Paul then gives us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Each of these qualities require us to deny those impulses that we have which belong to concupiscence. If you want to develop the virtue, you have to conquer the vice first. An example of this, I think. Let's say you're working in an office job and you're up for a promotion. So you put your best foot forward, but the boss goes through the process, decides to pass you over and promote one of your co-workers instead. Now, it would be common, and I don't think sinful, for you to be disappointed at this. You know, you did as best as you could. You trained. You tried to show yourself uh, as in the best light possible. You even updated your resume and made it look all nice, right? But you were passed over for whatever reason. So at that point, we haven't really crossed over into any sin. But let's say on your drive home, on your commute, and over the next few days, the more you think about it, the angrier you get. And you really hold on to this disappointment to the point that you begin to say, Things like you wish that they had just left the position empty or that they had hired from the outside instead of hiring your coworker over you. Okay, at this point, we've crossed over not into jealousy because jealousy just wants what someone else has. We've crossed into envy, which is sorrow over the good of another. And this is a fleshly impulse because it takes that sort of natural disappointment that you felt, what, what could actually be a sort of good and healthy disappointment, And it unjustly projects it onto someone else, blames them in ways that are probably not right. It directly contradicts your obligation to love them, to desire what's best for them. So if you react this way, well, then it's a sign that you're giving in to concupiscence rather than controlling your passions. What's the proper Christian response in such a situation? Well, it would be to emphasize self-control and goodness and love and long-suffering. You should try to be happy for the success of your coworker. You want what's best for them. And there's a posture of long-suffering that you could embrace here, knowing that God might be trying to teach you a lesson or, and or, he may eventually open up a better door for you that you would have been less able to take had you received the promotion that you were up for. These two lists then, the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, represent two paths before us, before all of us a way of life and a way of death. And it is a zero-sum game. It's one or the other. There is no neutral, as Deacon David has said. For Christians, there is no real choice about what it is we should do here. Walk in the Spirit, St. Paul says, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is intricately tied to who we are. They that are Christ's 
have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. This has happened to us at baptism, or at least it begins in us at baptism. And the rest of our Christian life is about living out this reality. It's about becoming who we were made to be. And I think it's important when we talk about this pursuit of holiness that we try to avoid two extremes that are both unhealthy. The first extreme is a kind of moral laxness, right? Some Christians will tell you once saved, always saved. That once you become a Christian, it really doesn't matter. You've been brought into the church. You can't leave it no matter what you do. And as nice as this might sound, it does contradict the scriptures. In Hebrews 3, we're told, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So we want to avoid presuming on grace, as John Wesley called it. I'm a little partial to John Wesley, as you might imagine. We don't want to use our perceived security as a license to sin or to be lazy in pursuing holiness. But the second extreme, the opposite extreme that we have to avoid, is what we call Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a heresy that says we can pursue holy virtue all by ourselves. That, that, we don't, that all we need to do is just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The problem with this is that it's really just another form of pride. As Christians, we acknowledge we have to be enabled by grace. But those of us who have been baptized particularly those of us who continue in the sacramental life of the church, have received a grace that is necessary to enable us to live holy lives. And so I think our colic this morning is a really good example of how to avoid these two extremes of laziness or laxity and Pelagianism. Almighty and everlasting God, give unto us the increase of faith, hope, and charity. So we acknowledge we cannot have these virtues unless God infuses them into us that we may obtain that which thou dost promise make us to love that which thou dost command that we may obtain that which thou dost promise so on the basis of our dependence on god we're called to obtain what he promises there is a kind of striving here there is a kind of hard work that we have to put in but always It's done on the basis of the fact that we are in Christ. So at the beginning of the sermon, we raised our hands to symbolize that we are baptized, and we raised them again to say that we are not yet what we should be. Our primary vocation as Christians, and we have lots of vocations, right? You're a spouse, you're a parent, you're a child, you're a sibling. Those are all vocations. You're an employer or an employee, Those are all vocations. But your primary vocation, the vocation that organizes all other vocations that you have, the most important job you have is to work with the grace that God gives to you through the sacraments and through prayer. And the end of that vocation is that that gap that we acknowledged at the beginning of the sermon, the gap between who we are and how we act becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until ultimately it's non-existent. Because we don't have to sin. We choose to sin. And if we're in Christ, we must become like Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.